I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Coming up, a proposal to shake up biomedical research. So what this does is it shifts the burden of non-rigorous science from the community to the scientists themselves. And a whole new system for controlling gene expression in our cells. In that second when the student showed me the data, I knew this was a potential paradigm-shifting breakthrough. Plus some highlights from the meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. This is The Nature Podcast for February the 23rd, 2017. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. At our Nature Podcast team meeting last week, we spotted an upcoming feature entitled A New Twist on Epigenetics. It sounded very cool, but none of us could guess what it might be about. So I rang up Cassandra Williard, who wrote the feature, and she started by giving me a quick epigenetics catch-up class. So epigenetics is basically the reason that you have the same DNA in every cell, but you have more than 200 different cell types because it's controlling which genes are expressed and which genes are silenced. Switching genes on and off is vital for the body to be able to control which proteins are produced in each cell and therefore how each cell functions. That's because genes, i.e. our DNA, get copied into RNA, which then get used to make proteins. The genes can be switched on and off by chemical marks, like methyl groups, which bind to specific sections of DNA. They affect which bits of DNA get transcribed into RNA and which don't. So DNA has a series of chemical marks, and these collectively are known as the epigenome. And people have known for a long time, for decades, that there are also many marks on RNA. They didn't really know what these marks were doing. Although marks on DNA, the epigenome, have been studied for a while, these marks on RNA have only been investigated relatively recently. Around 2008, there was a chemist named Chuan He. He was studying enzymes that repair DNA damage by removing a specific chemical mark from DNA. And he wondered if they might also work on RNA. There are all kinds of modifications people know on RNA. This is Chuan He at the University of Chicago. But in 2008, nobody had thought about that these marks could be dynamic and, and really could um, alter gene expression. Chuan He and his colleagues wondered if the marks on RNA could be important for gene expression, just like the marks on DNA are. But how could they investigate this possibility? Eventually, we decided that the key is to discover an enzyme to remove RNA modifications. So imagine if we have a dedicated enzyme, its function is to uh, reverse RNA modification. That would be the strongest indication that RNA modifications play critical roles in gene expression. If they could find an enzyme which removed the RNA marks, it would mean that these RNA modifications are dynamic rather than fixed. 
and so could change in response to the environment, just like the marks on DNA do. Because a lot of DNA and RNA modifications involve the addition of a methyl group, Chuan He looked for a demethylating enzyme. So we set out to discover a RNA demethylase, and we were lucky. Uh, in the winter of 2010, we found an enzyme called FTO. Uh, it's really a major factor associated with obesity, uh, with diabetes, a fascinating enzyme. FTO is a very well-known gene because mutations in FTO lead to such major problems. It was already being studied in Chuan He's lab as part of their work on DNA methylation, but no one had ever considered that it might work on RNA. What we found is this enzyme is RNA demethylase. What it does is it removes methylation from RNA. In that second, when the student showed me the data, I knew this was a potential paradigm-shifting breakthrough. It now looks like Chuan He was right about the significance of that first discovery. Cassandra Williard explained why this find was so important to our understanding of how our cells work. One of the central dogmas in biology is that DNA gets transcribed into RNA and that RNA gets translated into proteins. So if you have marks on DNA, um, they can control which genes get transcribed and which don't. If you have marks on RNA, they can control which transcripts, which pieces of RNA get translated into proteins or how much protein they make or, you know, how long those um, little bits of RNA stick around, that sort of thing. And it sort of opened up this whole idea that, you know, maybe it's this whole new way of regulating gene expression. Since that first discovery, Chuan He's lab has figured out a lot more elements of the system. After finding enzymes that removed a particular mark, they wanted to know how the marks are placed there in the first place how the cell then reads those marks, and how the marks can actually change gene expression. They found different readers for these, and depending on what reader binds to it, it does different things. So one of the readers appears to affect the stability of the RNA, so how quickly it decays. Another reader um, appears to affect how much protein gets made, and there's a third reader that seems to do both those things. These discoveries of complex systems involving RNA marks led to a whole new field of research called epitranscriptomics. And this has raised questions for loads of other areas in biology. In particular, there are medical conditions, such as those associated with the FTO enzyme, that could be affected by RNA marks. And understanding the epitranscriptomic system could even lead to new therapies for some conditions. It's been a really exciting uh, time. Uh, every day or every week, you see a different story come out connecting RNA modification with a different biological process. And frankly, uh, back in 2010, I realized that it was a paradigm-shifting uh, discovery, potentially back then, but I did not realize the breadth, the, the, the broad impacts uh, to almost all biology. That was Chuan He from the University of Chicago, as well as freelance journalist Cassandra Williard. Her feature is out in this week's issue and at nature.com forward slash news. For more on epigenetics, check out the Nature video, Epigenome, the Symphony in Your Cells, at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Before we continue with the show, we'd just like to issue a quick apology. In last week's show, we misnamed the director and chief curator of the National Churchill Museum. The curator is, in fact, Tim Riley. Sorry, Tim. 
Still to come, an eagle-eyed camera and an ancient pregnant reptile. Those stories are in the research highlights. But first, over the past week, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, or AAAS, has been holding its annual meeting. Scientific American's reporter and podcast host Steve Mursky has been embedded in the meeting. I gave him a call to find out his highlights and see whether the election of Donald Trump had changed the tone of the meeting. Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, science in this new era and been sessions on the role of fact in the post-fact era. It sounds very different from the last AAAS meeting that I went to, which seemed not apolitical, but politics definitely wasn't at the heart of it. Well, politics is never at the heart of the meeting, uh, but it, it always comes up because there are funding issues that uh, are clearly related to politics. One of the sessions I went to was about research into gun violence and how difficult it is to get funding for such research. One of the speakers that I heard, uh, David Hemingway, who's a professor of health policy at Harvard uh, School of Public Health, uh, talked about what an outlier the U.S. is in terms of gun deaths, especially among kids. Since I graduated from college, there have been more civilian deaths from guns in the United States than uh, combat deaths uh, in the battlefield in all the wars uh, in the United States history, including the Civil War and World War II. Compared to the other uh, two dozen uh, high-income countries, kids in the United States are much more likely to die in a gun homicide. And it's not 50% higher or twice as high or four times as high. It's 18 times higher. It paints a really staggering picture, but it's, it's obviously still a very a polemic issue in America. Did the response to that talk reflect that, that deep divide in America? The response here didn't because this is an audience of scientists for the most part, and the scientists want to be able to get better data and, and get funding to do this kind of research. Last year, there was a big buzz about gravitational waves. In fact, the, the announcement of gravitational waves happened just right at the start of, of the meeting. Is it still a talking point a year on? Yeah, most definitely. There were sessions on LIGO here, and there were sessions talking about being able to detect different wavelengths of gravitational waves. And uh, one of the interesting sessions that I went to uh, was given by a young researcher named Sarah Burke Spalor, who is with the National Radio Astronomy Laboratory in New Mexico. LIGO can detect relatively short wave gravity waves that are produced by interactions between objects of about a stellar mass, like our, our sun's mass. And uh, what Sarah Burke Spalor was talking about were PTAs, pulsar timing arrays, to look for really, really long wavelength gravitational waves. Just like we can scale the, the stellar mass black holes that LIGO can detect, pulsar timing arrays will probe the most massive, so the billion um, to even 10 billion solar mass binary black holes in the universe. Of course, gravitational waves does not stop at detection. What we really want to do is astrophysics with gravitational waves and use it as a new tool 
to observe the universe and understand our place in it. There's always plenty at the AAAS meeting on health. Were there any particularly surprising bits of news coming out of it this this time around? I went to a session on medical marijuana and what kind of data we have there. And again, that that's a, another area where politics comes into play because it, it was very difficult in the U.S. for many, many years to do any research on medical marijuana. But in recent years, though, with the legalization of marijuana uh, in various states, and it's become easier to do the research. And uh, a pain researcher and clinician at McGill University named Mark Ware talked about some of the interesting cascading effects of legalizing mar- marijuana. He, uh, he started by talking about uh, a 2014 study in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And they found that there was about a 25% reduction in opioid mortality in those states which had medical cannabis laws compared to those that did not. We've seen another type of follow-up study looking at patients at dispensaries. This is in Washington where uh, Kevin Bonica and his colleagues followed patients or looked, actually looked retrospectively at patients attending a dispensary and found that over six months they were reducing not only their opioid doses, but their antidepressants, their anticonvulsants, their anxiolytic medications. So again, suggesting that patients who are using cannabis are able to or seem to be willing to reduce the use of their other medications. Yeah, it's interesting to to think of all the other knock-on effects that might come of this quite big change in legislation. And were there any other pieces of health news coming out of the meeting this year that that you particularly took note of? Yeah, uh, well, there's a lot of study on microbiomes uh, still, and there will be for years to come. Uh, One of the speakers was a fellow named Brett Finley from the University of British Columbia, and uh, he was talking about the hygiene hypothesis, which says that, you know, maybe we're actually too clean and our especially infants, are being raised in environments where they're not exposed to enough of uh, an immune challenge, well, I'll let him say it. Get a dog. That's certainly dogs playing the environment. It's well known that dogs bring in microbes into the house. I think that's dogs do two things. They contact the environment and they contact the kids. And the presence of a dog is associated with a lower asthma rate. Presence of a dog in a house is a 20% decrease in asthma, which is weird because it used to say, you know, don't have dogs because they're allergic and they, they cause more asthma, which is, you know, a 180 in that sense. Is it still worth doing once you're in your late 20s or have I missed my chance? Uh, I'm afraid the data isn't really uh, suggestive of any any good effect there as far as I understand it. Thank you, Steve. I'll let you get back to the final little bit of the meeting now. Thanks very much. Good to talk. That was Steve Mursky on the line from Boston, where the AAAS meeting was held this year. For more from Steve, make sure to check out the Scientific American podcast. You can find it at the memorable address, scientificamerican.com forward slash podcasts. Stay tuned for news on the CRISPR gene editing legal battle and a giant fracture in Antarctica. Now, though, it's time for this week's research highlights, read by Noah Baker. Researchers have built an eagle-eyed camera. The tiny 3D-printed device uses an image sensor just a few millimetres long with four different lenses. Each lens is zoomed in a little more than the last, so the camera captures four images at the same time. 
it then combines them into one image which is more detailed in the middle. This mimics the way that predators like eagles focus their view to help pick out prey. This kind of technology could one day be used in drone cameras. Find that paper in Science Advances. A fossil find shows that an ancient reptile gave birth to live young. The 245-million-year-old fossil was found in China and was identified as a marine reptile called Dinocephalosaurus. And it was pregnant. Its relatively large offspring was curled up in a very similar way to the embryos of other vertebrates. Live birth has evolved dozens of times in various vertebrate groups, but this is the first evidence of live birth in an archosauromorph, the group which includes crocodiles, birds and other dinosaurs. Read about that ancient mother in Nature Communications. We love hearing your thoughts about the Nature Podcast as much as you love hearing the Nature Podcast. Mm, bit presumptuous. Well, they've made it this far through the show. Well, regardless of your opinion of the show, we'd love to hear from you. Mary McCade let us know that the show helps distract her when she's busy dissecting. Plus, she gets a gold star for spotting our not-so-subtle nod to Destiny's Child in last week's episode. To let us know what you think of the show, email us, podcast at nature.com, tweet us at naturepodcast. Or just write a review on your favourite podcasting app. Now, on with the show. You shouldn't trust everything you read in research papers. In the last few years, there's been a slew of replication studies and the results of unsettled scientists. In a psychology replication study, over half the findings tested didn't hold up. And an effort to reproduce cancer studies has returned mixed first results. So that raises the important question, how is research going to improve? Although there's been plenty of hand-wringing, the ideas for reforming research have been few and far between. In this week's Nature, a comment piece comes up with a suggestion, something described as preclinical trials. One of the piece's authors, clinical neurologist Malcolm McLeod, joined us in the studio to give us a better sense of the problem and his suggested solution. Over recent years, it's become increasingly apparent that some of the things that we thought we believed because they came out of laboratory research have turned out not to be true. There's a number of examples where drugs companies, for instance, have taken things from the scientific literature and said, hey, you know, we could make a drug out of this that could treat some diseases. But when they do the first step, which is trying to reproduce, replicate those findings in their own labs, they don't work. Just now, I wouldn't take a drug to trial on the basis of one or two or even three or four studies. So looking at the current situation, how many conclusions are wrong and why are they going wrong in the first place? Uh, well, that's the $64,000 question. <laughs> and the answer is that we don't really know. If you do a, a sort of back-of-the-envelope calculation, and people have tried to do this, so for instance, Johnny Nidis has estimated that perhaps as much as 85% of biomedical research is wasted because the answer is wrong or the answer is not relevant or the or the work isn't published. Uh, there's a number of what, what people have called dubious research practices that people are forced into doing to get the result that they require to get them published. They might repeat the experiment a couple of times until they get the right answer. They might use different statistical analysis plans depending on which one drops them under the magical 0.05. I'm not saying that any scientist gets up in the morning and decides to go into the lab to do bad research. I'm just saying that this is one of the things which creates the ecosystem, creates the incentive system, which 
which discourages people from doing the highest quality of research. So what uh, Dr. Mogul and I were keen to do was to try and see if we could uh, do a bit of brainstorming, a bit of thinking about what our what a scientific ecosystem, if you like, would look like that had the opposite effect, that encouraged people to do good quality research. In this comment piece that you are publishing this week, you call for something called preclinical trials. How would this work in practice? What is a preclinical trial and what, what does it hope to achieve? So, so the trick is to uh, combine the standards of rigour that we're used to requiring to demonstrate that a new drug is effective with the scientific flexibility to allow science still to be fun, to allow people to be inventive, to allow them to explore interesting ideas. And so instead of requiring that every part of the story has a result that is statistically significant and holds up, we say, judge the work as a whole. And so for the preliminary experiments, for the experiments that are done in support of the overall hypothesis, we don't want to see p-values. Uh, we don't want to see statistical significance. We want those to be good enough to convince the investigator that there's something worth looking into, something worth testing. And then they move on to the second stage, which is the formal hypothesis testing of the experiment. And that goes the other way. So instead of being less rigorous than done at present, it's much more rigorous. And then they published all of that together in one paper. So what this does is it shifts the burden of non-rigorous science from the community where it is just now to the scientists themselves. Perhaps a bigger question than how this would work in theory is how you actually get people to use this approach in practice. Are you optimistic that people might adopt this and how do you think you could encourage them to adopt it? As an immediate stage, uh, what I'd like to see first of all is journals saying that a paper of this shape would be something that they would consider as a submission if it was done explicitly in this way. And I'd like funding agencies to say that they thought that this was a tangible and valuable output from a programme of research and might even be prepared to set aside some money, some funds explicitly to test out whether the system does indeed lead to more generalisable research. Does this just add a lot of extra work for researchers to have to do? No, I think, I, I think that's exactly the opposite of our intentions. The challenge we set ourselves was to find a system that was not additionally burdensome. And we think that this will create greater flexibility in the early stages. It will reduce the requirement for uh, further animals to be used in the early stages that effort and work can be transferred to the later stages. And, of course, the great advantage is that if we can reduce that proportion of research, which it turns out was wasted from 85% to 65% or 45%, it doesn't really matter if this new approach takes a little bit more time or is a little bit more expensive because the value of the information that we get out of it at the end will be so much better. That was Malcolm McLeod from the University of Edinburgh. Read his comment piece at nature.com forward slash news. And speaking of news, it's time for this week's news chat and Heidi Ledford joins us in the studio. Hi, Heidi. Hi, thanks so much. Now, the patent battle over the famous CRISPR gene editing technique has finally ended. Before we come to the conclusion of this trial, what was the trial actually about? 
Uh, well, so there are two groups, um, and we tend to refer to them loosely as Berkeley and the Broad Institute, although there are more institutions than just those two that are involved. But, they, but they're on two teams, um, and they were fighting over who had rights to key patents that would cover a lot of uses of CRISPR-Cas9 for, for genome editing, for making changes to the genome. So they were duking it out over patent rights to those key, those key patents. And who won? And is it surprising that they won? Well, so technically the Broad won, um, but that doesn't mean that it's over uh, because Berkeley can appeal for one thing. Um, and then also, even if Berkeley didn't appeal, the Bro- whoever wins this fight is going to end up being challenged later on by lots of other you know, would-be patent holders. I'm sure it'll end someday, <laughs> but you, not for a while. You look quite uh, f- fatigued by the, the whole I think, event. I think a lot of people sort of have CRISPR patent fatigue on this. You know, there's been a lot of... It's very unusual, I think, for academics to be quite as interested in a patent battle uh, as as they tend to be in this one, um, in part because the technology is so interesting and in part because the two teams are these really leading institutions in, in biomedical research and these two, you know, some of the... Researchers involved are, you know, sort of household names if you're a, if you're a, um, a biomedical researcher. So it's been a very interesting case, but it has dragged on for a while, and it'll keep dragging on. So um, Berkeley can a- appeal, and Berkeley has even said, uh, also even if it doesn't appeal, it has said that um, it believes it can still assert its patents over all uses of CRISPR-Cas9 uh, for genome editing. Um, there's a a bit of a division. Um, you know, the Broad definitely has rights to use in, in eukaryotic cells like plants and animals, uh, humans. So the uses that are likely to be quite lucrative. Um, Berkeley's patents, it's not as clear the way they're written that they would apply for the apply to those uses. Uh, so that's some of the battle. But Berkeley was saying that it believed that that patent would hold for those as well. Of course, it matters a lot to those two institutes. Mm-hmm. Does it matter to researchers who are using CRISPR in their day-to-day work in the lab? Thankfully, no. <laughs> so for academic researchers, it, it should not matter that much. Both insti- or both sides, and more than these two institutions, but both sides have been freely licensing you know, the technology to academic researchers for some time now. There's, there's every expectation that would continue. Um, it's it has it's more of an impact for the companies who want to eventually sell some sort of product that they've made based on CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing. So, um, and, and the, it's it's really interesting. Those companies have already lined up to license these patents, even though you know the the, the situation has been very unclear. Berkeley's patent hasn't even been granted yet, um, and then there was this fight going on between the two uh, teams. So, it primarily it impacts them and how much they're going to have to pay for their licenses and so forth. What's the next thing to watch out for? Will there be a bit of quiet on the legal front? Or? Well, we could get a few days of quiet. I, if I remember correctly, I think Berkeley has maybe 60 days to appeal. You're only hoping for a few days of quiet. Yeah. That's as optimistic <laughs> as you can be. Probably so. Um, so if they appeal, quite a few people think they probably will appeal. Uh, and if they do, we should know, I, I would guess, within the next couple of months. Um, beyond that, you know, Berkeley still has to get its patent granted as well. So we could keep an eye on that and see if it is granted and in what form. Let's turn now to our second story of the week, which is a little bit further south, all the way in Antarctica, where there's some pretty ominous news. Yeah, it's amazing to me as someone who doesn't often cover these sorts of geologic scale events, I guess. But there is a massive crack. It's in one of the largest ice shelves in Antarctica called Larsen Sea. Uh, I think the crack is something like 175 kilometers long. It could set loose eventually an iceberg that's twice the size of Luxembourg into the sea. So this is the 
Larson C ice shelf. Presumably there was a Larson A and a Larson B as well. There were, that's right. So Larson B, if I remember, broke loose in 2002. Larson A, I believe, was 1995. Did these two prior examples give us an, an understanding of what might happen with C? They really do. Um, so particularly, I believe, Larson B, it, it sort of illustrated this effect where um, these ice shelves can serve as a kind of a cork. And once they pop out, then the glaciers that are behind them are free to, to come out into the sea at a higher rate. How much do they actually accelerate by? So the speed at which the, the glaciers can, can flow into the sea can increase by up to a factor of eight. And in terms of the impact, of course, ice flowing into the sea, that implies sea level rise. How big a contribution would the loss of this Larson Sea actually have? So this one um, would cause, it's enough for global sea level to rise by about a centimeter. And then to put that into perspective, uh, right now global sea levels are rising at about three millimeters a year due to climate change and so forth. So a centimeter, it might not sound like a lot, but it is actually quite a bit compared to what else is going on Exactly, that's quite a bit more than usual. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out for what the coming weeks and months hold for for Larson C. Heidi, thank you very much for joining us. For more on those stories and others, head to nature.com forward slash news. That's all we've got time for this week, but keep an ear out for this month's Bat Chat, where we'll be discussing various news, including countries' climate ambitions. And next week, we're bringing you a special show with three pieces centred around a common theme. Stay tuned for that. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.